Disclaimer. The producers and guests associated with this episode may express their opinion, but this podcast does not support any political parties. We only aim to bring different perspectives on different issues through the free exchange of opinions and ideas. So,、um, yeah, we can get started. Well, first of all,、uh, thank you, Mr. Stone, for coming on the show.、Um, how about you introduce yourself a little bit first, so just for the listeners to get to know you and、uh, what your organization is about? Okay. Uh, my name is、uh, Ken Stone. I'm the treasurer of the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War, which has been in existence for 19 years now. We formed at the time of the run up to the war on Iraq. And、uh, since then, we've never had to change our names because we've been living since、uh, 9 11 in a state of perpetual war. And so our coalition、uh, has been involved in opposing not only the war in Iraq, but、uh, the wars in Libya and Syria and Somalia, Sudan, so on. All the、uh, targets of the、um, US empire, of which Canada is a willing player. I'm also、uh, executive of the Syria Solidarity Movement. And,、uh, On top of that, I am also a, a member of the steering committee of the Cross Canada campaign to free Meng Wan Zhou. So it keeps me pretty busy. That's nice.、Uh, so I guess we'll ju-、uh, jump into today's topic, which is about genocide or not in Xinjiang. So, genocide,、uh, this term is very, very controversial, especially applied to this region, as there's a lot of debate as to whether this term is correctly applied or not.、Uh, so, my first question would be、uh, On February 22, 2021, the Canadian House of Commons voted on a non binding motion number 56, put by Evan O'Toole's Conservative Party and supported by the NDP,、uh, Greens Party, and、uh, BQ, so Parti Quebecois. Uh, some liberal backers also voted for the resolution, and the vote was to censure se-、uh, China for a genocide of Uyghurs in Xinjiang province,、uh, passed 266 0. So,、uh, what is exactly going on here, Mr. Sun? So, why are they debating a bill on the use of the term genocide or not? That's a good question. That's the,、uh, that's the question of the day, Henry. What's happening here is that there is a hidden agenda at work on Parliament Hill, and it's driven by a foreign power. And the hidden agenda is to drag Canada into a new Cold War with China. And the foreign power that's trying to drag us in is, of course, the United States of America. So, for a couple of years now, the Canadian Parliament has had a subcommittee. Uh, called the International Human Rights Committee, and they have been、uh, cooking up a case against China that there is a genocide of Uyghurs in China's Xinjiang province. And they have stacked this committee with people f- who are members of Uyghur organizations that are opposed to the government of China. And、uh, they have been, they held hearings, and the hearings started, I believe, in 2018. And they invited a man named Adrian Zenz to come to the hearing and to give some op- opinion. 
And uh, they treated him as if he is a world expert. But in fact, Mr. Adrian Zenz is not an expert on anything. He is a, uh, he calls himself a senior fellow of the Victims of Communism Foundation, which foundation happens to be supported almost entirely by the government of the United States of America. And the purpose of that Victims of China, uh, Victims of Communism Foundation is to whip up hysteria, hatred, anxiety about Russia and China, which, by the way, were our allies in World War II in the worldwide fight against fascism. And the people, uh, there, were, there were millions of victims of fascism in Russia during the Second World War and also in China. And Russia and China were our allies. But Mr. Zenz belongs to this organization funded by the U.S. government, and he has written uh, extensively saying that there is a genocide of Uyghurs in China. But the facts speak differently. The, the, you know, the statistics, you can't, people, the statistics tell the real picture. Between 2010 and 2018 in Xinjiang province in China, the population of Uyghur people expanded by 25%. So it could hardly be called a genocide if the population is expanding. Moreover, the statistics in China show that Xinjiang province has the highest growth rate in the entire country, um, and that millions of people, including the Uyghur population, have been lifted out of poverty. So how can you call it a genocide when population of Uyghurs is growing and they're prospering? And they have, la they have newspapers in their language, they have hospitals, where they can go to and speak in their own language and schools in their own language and cultural facilities in their own language. The Uyghur language is on the Chinese currency. Um, it, it's outrageous to think that there is an attempt to squelch the Uyghur population in China. In fact, for 40 years, the Chinese government had a policy of a one-child policy was to restrict the population, understandable, uh, but the, uh, the Uyghur population was exempted, and they were allowed, in, whereas Han people were allowed to have one child, Uyghur, the Uyghur population was allowed to have two, and now even three. So in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region of China, there is, there is not in any form a genocide of Uyghurs. So how, what does Mr. Zenz and his followers have to say? Well, they, they say that, according to Mr. Zen's twisted view, he is a right-wing, evangelical, born-again Christian, uh, a German, he calls himself an anthropologist. Uh, he has some very strange views. Uh, one of the views is that uh, Jews who don't convert to Christianity will be burned in a fiery furnace. Another strange view which doesn't often come out when they discuss his views in Parliament or in, in the media here in Canada, is that birth control is uh, an abomination. Mr. Zenz, you see, is on a crusade. His crusade is he believes God is using him as an instrument to destroy the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government. And so he says that because there is birth control in uh, Xinjiang province, that this is an attempt to curtail the, the population of Uyghurs. 
And so this constitutes a genocide. He's saying, if you look at the UN definition of genocide, which I just, which I have here on my screen, it says about uh, moving people around uh, in their from their native areas. Well, what the Chinese government does is that it offers people training and vocation and, and jobs and covers the travel expenses for people to go to other parts of the country or other parts of the province for jobs, for vocational training. And this, Mr. Zenz interprets to be genocide under the UN definition. Uh, I call it economic development. And the Chinese government has done a remarkable job. They have lifted 800 million people out, out of poverty. So frankly, I don't see that there is any genocide in uh, Xinjiang province. But in, in Canada, the government and the opposition parties have unfortunately bought into um, a lot of the schemes of the US government to demonize China. For example, uh, the Canadian government has meddled in the affair, internal affairs of China by supporting separatism in Hong Kong. The Canadian government has bought into the saber, the gunboat diplomacy, or what we sometimes call saber rattling by the US. And when the U US decides to send a, an aircraft carrier fleet into the Straits of Taiwan, sure enough, there's a Canadian warship following behind. Um, the Canadian government is unfortunately being dragged in to a new Cold War with China. So what transpired on Parliament Hill was an absolutely disgusting display of, of blind partisanship on the part of Canadian politicians to support whatever U.S. administration is in power. They, they say that the Trump administration... Uh, believe there was a genocide. They understand the Biden administration says that there's a genocide, even though the State Department lawyers said publicly they have no proof. And so the Canadian uh, government is falling into the trap. And in this case, the opposition parties, the conservatives, want to be more pro-American than the government itself. And so they initiated this vote in the House of Commons. At the committee level for two years they did not entertain anyone no one who had any uh, views that disagreed with mr adrian zenz there have been several exposés of mr zenz um one of them is by the gray zone uh, two authors max blumenthal who was speaking at our event on friday night and gareth porter and uh, you can find that at the gray zone. I think I have it here somewhere. Uh, the gray zone, yeah, and date is this. No, it was by Ajit Singh, who is a Canadian, and Max Blumenthal, December 21st, 2019. And the title of the article is, China Detaining Millions of Uyghurs? Serious Problems with Claims by U.S.-backed NGO and far-right researcher led by God against Beijing, Adrian Zenz. So that's one article your viewers can have a look at. Another one uh, is an article by, let's see, it's by Stephen Gowans. Stephen Gowans is a Canadian author and political writer, and he has a blog called What's Left. 
and he's published an article just in a, a two weeks ago, March 2nd, 2021, and it's called The Watchdogs of Imperialism and the Uyghur Genocide Slander. And he also exposes the, the backing of, of Adrian Zenz, the Uyghur World Congress, the, and all these other organizations, an alphabet soup of Uyghur organizations that are funded uh, indirectly from the U.S. government through the National Endowment for Democracy, which is a subcontractor for the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. So that, uh, Stephen... Oh, sorry, Mr. Stone, let me uh, interrupt you here a little bit. I have a, a couple questions that needs to be addressed. So the first question is regarding uh, your statistics about the, the growth of the Uyghur population uh, from 2010 to 2017. I think uh, what the genocide here we are talking about specifically referring to the uh, re-education camps that appeared after 2017 from the period of 2017 to 2019. So how would you uh, explain the re-education centers as a part of whether it is a part of genocide or it's not uh, actually genocide? Well, there is no doubt that there was terrorism in the Xinjiang autonomous, uh, Uyghur autonomous region. Uh, a group called the uh, East Turkestan Islamic Movement and Party were responsible for it and other groups as well. And many people were killed, many people were injured and wounded. And the fight against terrorism is a global fight, and the Chinese government was doing its part to uh, stop terrorism on its own territory. And naturally, they, they had a two-pronged policy. One was to you know, arrest the terrorists, uh, and the other policy was to try to ameliorate as much as possible the conditions in Xinjiang province such that you know, terrorists who are sponsored from uh, other countries, uh, sponsored abroad, have no basis among the population to get any kind of support or encouragement. And I think the Chinese government uh, did that. They didn't use a, a very heavy hand, uh, in my opinion, you know, rounding up, you know, bunches of people, torturing them and executing them, as has happened in other countries. I think that they have approached this in a, in a sensible and rational way by uh, having re-education centers. And actually, Canada has a de-radicalization program. It's run by the uh, RCMP, and it's mainly for the people, uh, the Canadians, who went over or wanted to go over to fight alongside ISIS in Syria and Iraq. So Canada has a similar program, not on the same scale, of course, as China. Uh, but, you know, the de-radicalization is one uh, part of the program to, to counter terrorism. The other part was to improve conditions in Xinjiang province, which I do believe that the Chinese government did an admirable job at doing. Uh, sorry, Mr. Stone, how can you also explain the, shall we call them SKPs of the re-education camp? How there are witness accounts of uh, mass rapes or of torture inside the re-education re center. How would you explain that as a part of an re-education effort rather, rather than uh, a part of genocide? Well, I first of all, let's keep in mind that the people who support uh, the, the terrorist organizations 
do not hesitate to make up stories. You know, this is the 10th anniversary of the war on Syria, and I've been involved from day one. And the the inside Syria, the uh, the terrorists there who are uh, funded and supported by NATO countries, by the Arab monarchies, by the state of Israel, uh, make up these lurid and fancy tales, including uh, false flag chemical attacks, all of which are used to put the blame on the Syrian government in order to get foreign countries to intervene in Syria, mainly the United States, the UK, France, the usual NATO suspects. And so I think that it's the same in in China. Max Blumenthal, in his articles at the Gray Zone, has gone through the testimony. I, I can't do it here, but he goes through the testimony of some of these so-called witnesses, and their testimony changes over time. Um, and these people are just not reliable witnesses. I should point out as well, I'm talking about Syria, that there is a, you know, inside of Syria, there is a whole town in the uh, province of Idlib, which is occupied now, the people who used to live there, I guess, have been uh, ethnically cleansed, occupied now by these East Turkestan uh, militants, these uh, terrorists, who have uh, and there's about 15,000 of them, uh, the last count I heard. And they are there in China for one reason only, to get military experience to go back. And they are in Syria explicitly to get military experience to go back to China and start a war there. So these are the kinds of people we're dealing with. These are not people who are looking for you know, a, a, a calm and peaceful society where people you know, work together and share the benefits of the common good. Uh, these are people who are agents of countries like Saudi Arabia, who funds these groups, or some of the Arab monarchies, whose aim is to promote their sectarian view, it's called Wahhabism, which is completely the, uh, the opposite of what the Chinese government is. The Chinese government is a secular government, and everybody's allowed to have freedom of religion, but not the followers of Wahhabism from Saudi Arabia. They only recognize one strand of Islam as valid, and they don't hesitate to chop off the heads of others. So dealing with people like that, I think the Chinese government has done rather well in curbing the terrorism and bringing up the standard of living so that people in Xinjiang feel that they are a part of, a, uh, of one of the most prosperous countries in the world. Uh, sorry, Mr. Song, I would ha uh, like to come back to your point of a secular government in China. Yeah. As a Chinese myself, I know that China's secularism is uh, very different from the Western notion of religious tolerance. For instance, churches are definitely monitored, Christian churches as well as uh, Buddhist churches. So, so I don't think China's effort uh, in providing a secular government is necessarily an act of religious tolerance rather than religious control and dominance. So how do you, do you think this uh, impact the so-called re-education centers of Xinjiang? Well, um, I'm not an expert on, uh, on Xinjiang, I don't claim to be, uh, but I do know that there are 25,000, nearly 25,000 mosques in that uh, autonomous region. And that's more than all the mosques put together in Canada and the U.S and that people have halal meat. Women can wear the um, hijab in the street. 
I don't know what else the uh, people uh, would need in order to have freedom of religion. In Canada, the government has used, in the past, has used churches in order to uh, achieve, almost to achieve. They tried to achieve a cultural genocide of the native people uh, through many means in this country. The main means over the past hundred years was the residential schools in which the government of Canada pointed the churches to run schools away from Indian communities and they kidnapped the children of the native people in Canada and they took them to these residential schools where they tried to drive the Indian out of the Indians. They tried to assimilate the, the native children. They discouraged their own languages. They discouraged their cultures. They beat them. They sexually abused them. There are thousands of uh, native children who went to these schools who are unaccounted for. No, no graves. No, uh, they, they just disappeared. It was a crime. It, it would, in fact, qualify under the UN definition of genocide. And this was a policy, an official policy of the Canadian government to use the churches to assimilate and destroy the native culture. So I don't think that that terrible kind of thing is happening in China. And so, you know, it seems to me that uh, the Chinese government, uh, you know, allows uh, freedom of religion. And uh, in fact, they, I understand they even rebuilt some of the churches in uh, some of the mosques in Xinjiang province that were in poor repair at government expense. So it seems to me not at all an unpleasant uh, situation, you know, for uh, Muslim worshippers. Uh, sorry, Mr. Sun, I would like to interrupt you again. Uh, I think here you are making an unfair comparison between the government of Canada and the government of China, uh, because the schools that you talked about were happened mainly during the 20th century and the 19th century, which was a period of uh, great uh, turbulation in China as well. For example, the Great Leap Forward or, for example, the Cultural Revolution potentially killed more people than uh, World War II and potentially World War One combined. So I think you are making an unfair comparison between China's modern action with uh, Canada's past mistakes. And uh, the second point I want to make about, again, religious tolerance in China is the fact that secular religion in China is not, uh, again, it's not a, a religious tolerance thing. For example, during the Cultural Revolution, again, the Chinese destroyed their own culture by there was forced things that were uh, prohibited during that time period. So again, uh, China's secularism is not the same thing as religious tolerance, which I think would be an impact here in Xinjiang. And my point of inquiry is to get to know how that impacts the people in Xinjiang, more specifically in the re-education re center. What are they taught if Chinese government is a secular one, but not a religious tolerant one? Um, to be frank, I'm, that was a very long question, so I'm not sure how to answer it. I think that the main question that, that uh, we are dealing with today, is there a genocide of Uyghurs in China? And I think the population statistics and the cultural statistics um, show that there is not. Now, if you want to talk about uh, you know, freedom of religion in China, I think that's a different matter. And, you know, I 
I'm be more interested in talking about what, how this, as the Chinese ambassador calls it, lie of the century about this Uyghur genocide is being used in Canada to whip up animosity for a new Cold War and is also being used to create, well, maybe not purposely, but it's creating sinophobia. It's creating, you know, heightened levels of racism and hate crimes against Asian Canadians. I think the number of hate crimes in British Columbia last year went up 330%. That's a, a feature of a whole bunch, a number of things. It, it inc includes Trump weaponizing the COVID-19 pandemic and calling it a Chinese virus. It has to do with the campaign to meddle in the affairs of Hong Kong. It has to do with the uh, arrest of Meng Wanzhou and the, the slander against her company, Huawei, that it's using uh, back doors to spy on its users. And uh, I think that those are the important issues that we want to that I would like to talk about today. And one of the things that comes out of the um, the vote that took place in the House of Commons and the fact that they didn't have a proper investigation, they didn't allow another any other points of view to be heard, was that um, we are having this event on uh, Friday night with some very excellent speakers. Uh, including Max Blumenthal, and including Daniel Dumbrell, a Canadian YouTuber who has a huge following. He lives in China. Including Omar Latif, a Canadian veteran trade unionist and activist who has been in China, went to uh, Xinjiang province, and you know, took many photos, and uh, he has given many speeches about what he saw. And finally, uh, we will have the Chinese Consul General, Madame Liu Zhu, uh, from Calgary to speak as well. And, you know, the, the purpose of this will be to try and deflect what, you know, the drive towards a new Cold War, and also to try and repair relations between Canada and China, which were very good. Going back to, I think it was 1971, when the, the elder Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, uh, recognized the, the People's Republic of China, exchanged diplomatic relations and open trade. We had good relations with China for almost 50 years. And now the relations are going down in a worsening spiral all the time. What we need is a fact-finding mission of Canadian parliamentarians, academics, labor leaders, faith leaders, uh, to go to China at the invitation of the Chinese government, if, if they so agree, go to Xinjiang province, and have a look for themselves and report back to Parliament because the the motion, number 56, that you referred to at the very beginning of this interview is a non-binding motion. It's not etched in stone. It was just an opinion by the Parliament at that moment, on that day, February 22nd. It can be changed. And I think it should be changed. And that's one of the reasons we're having the forum on Friday night and we're calling for a fact-finding mission to China. Ms. Ming, you have a question, go ahead. Yeah, so um, it does circle back to the topic of the re-education camps. So I believe that you said they are meant to be 
for terrorists or suspected terrorists, would you be able to clarify with us what criteria the government uses to identify these people? No, of course not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be part uh, privy to that. I'm not privy to what the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police use as uh, evidence in their de-radicalization programs either. I'm just saying that that is the Chinese method, one of their two-pronged strategy. One is to, you know, take those people uh, and re-educate them. The other one is to improve the lot of the whole population such that the people, the terrorists have no support among the people because the people are happy. Yeah, I see. Um, I believe that in many newspapers, this is a spot of controversy because they believe that the Chinese government is not totally being transparent with the people on these criteria. So what comments would you have about China's transparency on their policy surrounding these these camps? Um, what I would say is, uh, what I would say about the RCMP, they aren't transparent enough either here. And I would hope that the Chinese government would be more transparent. The, but, you know, it's not, it's not something they're hiding under a blanket. More than 50 countries uh, issued a statement at the Un United Nations Human Rights Council, led by Cuba, applauding the exemplary treatment by China, by the Chinese government, of its Uyghur population. And of the f more than 50, there, 23 of them were mainly Muslim countries. And many of these Muslim countries sent delegations at the invitation of the Chinese government to go and have a look in Xinjiang province and talk to the people. And they did. And they came back and they voted to applaud the Chinese government. I have never been to Xinjiang province. I have been to China, but I never made it that far west. And so I don't know myself, but other people have gone and... It seems to them that the people of Xinjiang are expand. Their population is expanding, and their prosperity is expanding, and they have plenty of access to their own culture and history and heritage. So, if you want to compare that to Libya, which has become a failed state because NATO, including Canada, supported terrorists going into Libya to destroy that country, and now it's a failed state with uh, rival armies, rival proxy armies fighting each other, or if you want to go into Syria where the Syrian government has had to fight for 10 long years against these jihadi terrorists who uh, were responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths, and I was in Syria, and destruction of whole cities. It's unbelievable to see. If, if you want to compare that to what's going on in Xinjiang, there's no comparison. What's going on in Xinjiang is, I would say, is very, you know, normal and responsible, uh, whereas... Sorry, Mr. Mr. Sun, I would like to interrupt you for a second. So first of all, the Syrian government is actually responsible for the most amount of death in the Syrian civil, uh, civil war. And the second point I would like to point out is, why did China hide the fact of re-education camp until there was enough evidence to prove their uh, very existence in 2017? So if if uh, China's attempt was to actually uh, de-radicalize the extremists, why would they hide the existence of the uh, of the of these camps? 
I'm not sure. Okay, to the first question about Syria, I think that the uh, Syrian army has suffered the most casualties. The casualties of the Syrian army are probably the largest proportion of the deaths in Syria. And I think the Syrian people and the Syrian government have made, and the Syrian Arab army, have made huge sacrifices so as not to be defeated by the U.S. empire and all its proxies in NATO and in the Arab monarchies and the state of Israel. They have done a fantastic job fighting the biggest empire in world history and keeping their state and their secular government and their social programs alive. And they deserve a lot of credit. Um, now, as for China, to answer your second question, I've said it before, I've, I haven't been there, but other people have, including governments, who end, uh, like the 23 Muslim countries who signed the declaration, the 50-plus declaration at the UN Human Rights Council, lauding China. So, you know, governments have gone on and in there and looked, and what they found was agreeable. No, but my point is, why would they conceal the camps if they were not re-education camps? I don't know if they're concealing anything. I, I haven't a clue things are being concealed. There was one Canadian who sent me an email today, uh, Scott Taylor from the Esprit de Corps magazine. He went there and he visited these camps. And along with, you know, it was an official delegation. And he, he saw the camps and he said it was clean. It was uh, nice. Uh, people had good food. They were well-dressed. They were getting uh, vocational training. He spoke to them. They, they seemed to be, to be happy. So what can I add to that? I'm not an eyewitness, but eyewitnesses have gone there from Canada and have found the situation reasonable and agreeable. And my question is, then let's talk about international uh, countries and experts. Uh, so according to a body of 15 international experts, China's alleged actions in Xinjiang has uh, violated every single clause in UN's genocide convention. So uh, why do some people still argue that it's not a genocide? Well, I, I think we covered that earlier, but I'm, I'm going to call up the genocide, uh, the convention on genocide. Okay, so Article 2 gives five grounds, killing members of the group. Second one, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. C is deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And E, forcefully transferring children of the group to another group. And I think that uh, the Chinese government hasn't done any of these things. In fact, you know, when I look at these, I see you know, actions that the Canadian government has done, not just the residential schools, but, you know, the fact that there was a 60s snatch of children from their homes across native children from their homes. There was the genocide of the, uh, the Beatuks in Newfoundland who were killed to the very last woman. So I, I can see how people like Adrian Zenz, who are getting paid by the American government and have an ax to grind, and hate, they believe that there are instruments of God and hate communism. I can see that they would look at vocational schools as forcibly transferring children or, and I can see birth control, of course, 
Adrian Zenz is opposed to birth control. So if uh, if birth control and family planning is provided to uh, the Uyghur population in, in Xinjiang province, as I am sure it is, then he would he does. And in fact, he has said that that's a sign of genocide. But we have family planning here in Hamilton, Ontario, and I don't think it cons- constitutes uh, genocide. Uh, sorry, Mr. Stone, let me come back to the question about uh, eyewitnesses. You said uh, official delegations have won there, but I would argue that those are official delegations have a lot of other interesting stakes as to their poli- uh, political alliance with China or with the, uh, with the US, so basically with the two hegemony. And um, uh, again, back to the topic of eyewitnesses. So what makes uh, their, their eyewitnesses more valuable than the supposed escapees from the camps themselves? Um, I think the uh, quality of the testimony is what differentiates the two. If you have a witness who changes his or her story every time you ask them the same question, that designates that person as an unreliable witness. Uh, whereas if you have people, delegations of people who go to a place and they do a fact find, they undertake a fact finding mission, and they, uh, you know, they see the, all the things that they wanted to see, and they come back and say, we didn't see anything illegal or untoward or un- disagreeable. Then I think you, uh, I, I would be more inclined to take the second group of people versus the the first. Mm, uh, sorry, I would disagree as official delegations are often prepared and arranged in a way that to provide the best possible view of the country as possible. And again, there are political uh, alliances behind the official delegations, whereas the witnesses, they have no interest in basically disgracing uh, a country or otherwise. I would respectfully disagree with you, Henry based on my experience of what happened in the former Yugoslavia, which was destroyed by NATO during the 1990s, and my experience in uh, Libya, from Libya, I've never been to Libya, my experience in Syria. There are people who are on the payroll of countries and governments whose purpose is to destroy other countries or to bring, bring them into compliance with their foreign policy. For example, the United States uh, would wanted very much to for the Syrian government at the tur- turn of the century to become part client, client state in the U.S. empire. The uh, Syrian government under Bashar al-Assad refused to do so. They didn't go along with the pipeline plans that uh, Qatar and Turkey wanted, and they didn't go along with the plan that the United States wanted for Syria to uh, break its alliance with Iran and become friendly with Israel. Um, And so uh, the United States, according to the WikiLeaks papers, uh, I've got the the book in the next room, but I don't have it in front of me. Uh, It's a a chapter, uh, I think it's chapter five. They do the entire list of cables from Damascus uh, from 2005 to 2011, and it shows how the U.S. government, uh, you know, funded and uh, organized and uh, armed these proxy armies and their spokespersons. And those spokespersons would tell very many lies about Syria and they would make the most outrageous statements which were in contravention of the truth. Uh, And they still do it today. Uh, The 
The white helmets still exist in Syria. It was funded to the tune of something like $250 million, at least $4.5 million from Canada. That's the latest figures we had, but probably much more. And they are paid. They are Syrians who were paid to create false you know, gas attacks, gas incidents, and they uh, would blame them on the Syrian government. So, you know, these are, and these are, they make films about themselves and they get uh, nominated for Academy Awards and they get a, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. But what they're doing is telling lies and being proxies for foreign governments who are trying to make the regime change in Syria. Uh, you know, if someone says, if someone comes forward and makes a statement, a bald statement, it doesn't mean that they are correct. You have to find out where they come from, for whom they speak, where who's paying their bills. Yeah, Mr. Stone, I would uh, like, again, I would like to interrupt you here on Syria. So, for example, Syria uh, supposedly, um, whether true or not, was supposed to to base their regime on terror. For, for instance, at the beginning of the revolution, or you will call it a so-called revolution, um, they send a amputated body of a 13 years old back to the family as a warning uh, as to what would happen if they did not comply with the demands of the Syrian government. So what would you respond to those acts of terror that the Syrian government performs on its own citizen? I don't believe those stories. They're not, uh, they're not factual. These are the myths that have been created to uh, justify a war of regime change against Syria for the past 10 years. The truth is... Then, sorry, Mr. Stone, again, I would like to interrupt you here. Then how, how would you justify the false elections that took place in Syria? I was there in 2016, and I observed the election, uh, the parliamentary election. And I, to me, you know, I visited... Sir, uh, again, I would like to interrupt you that your your observation are very different from like an international body of watchdogs observation of the Syrian elections. And according to every single watchdog organization, the Syrian elections have been false for a long time. Oh, that's not true. That's simply not true. For example, I think it was in 2014 or 15, there was a presidential election in Syria in which there were three candidates running, including uh, President Bashar al-Assad, and uh, there was 31 countries which sent verification missions, and they found out uh, that Bashar al-Assad did indeed uh, win, I think it was 87% of the vote with 78% of the population voting, and I don't think there was any question at the time that the election was... Uh, so, Mr. Mr. Stone, again, I would like to interrupt you on that election. That election, the number was actually falsified and rounded up to a uh, 87%. It turned out to be 86.66%, and then they rounded up to 87%. Well, that's that's a, you're allowed to do that uh, in math, as you should well know. Uh, so, I, I I disagree with your estimate of the Syrian elections, and I don't uh, have any faith in people who are funded by uh, these NGOs or these terrorist groups who are subcontractors for the National Endowment for Democracy or for the United States Central Intelligence Agency. They will say whatever they're told to say. If you want to find witnesses, you have to make sure that their hands are clean before you believe what they say. 
Then, Mr. Stone, how can you believe your own witnesses if you don't believe the witnesses of others? How do you justify your belief in your witnesses that they are their hands are clean or they are not back, uh, backed by the Russian or Chinese government? Um, if someone is backed by the Russian or Chinese government, that does not, in my books, make them bad or a liar or anything else. Then what makes you think that witnesses backed by Americans are... The Russian and Chinese governments are legitimate governments. They are members of the UN Security Council. They have the right to, uh, you know, to have uh, a sway over their own countries. It's their duty, in fact. And so does the Syrian government. It has a duty and a, uh, to protect its national sovereign territory and its population. And that's what it does. Now, Canada would do the same thing if we were invaded by a foreign power or agents and proxies of a foreign power. This is what countries do. Then, uh, then, Mr. Stone, how do you explain the fact that the Syrian government is responsible for the most amount of death by far in the Syrian civil war? I, I, as I said to you, I think that they are the ma major victims. No, no, they are the war. major cause of death, the Syrian army. The major cause of death in the Syrian war is the United States government. Sorry, but that's not what the statistics say. And its allies, and its allies in, the, in NATO, its uh, Arab monarchies and the state of Israel, which against international law caused a war of aggression against a sovereign country. This is the most serious violation of international law, according to the Nuremberg uh, Convention trials, of all international law, starting a war. So I blame the entire situation, all the deaths, all the destruction, all the loss of life, all the refugees, all the displaced people, all the whole gamut of things on the people who started the war in Syria. And that is the United States and its coalition of partners, including, unfortunately, the government of Canada. And uh, you don't place any blame on the Syrian government. And it's Russia and uh, Iranian and Chinese allies. Absolutely not. Why? What blame would they have for defending the territory of Syria? What blame would... Uh, would I mean, their blame could be the same as the U.S. empire's. I'm not claiming that the U.S. empire is like innocent in this uh, war or anything. I'm just stating that we have to consider the fact that the uh, the Russian government, the Chinese government, have an interest in Syria, and they are not innocent in the Syrian affair. If they did not support Syria for this long, then Syria probably would have fallen like Iraq in 2003. The Russian and the Iranian governments both have material interests in seeing that the Syrian government does not fall into the failed state status of, a Lib for example, Libya, another victim of the U.S. empire, because if it did, it would be splintered into tiny little warring statelets, and the proxy armies of those tiny little warring statelets would soon find their way through Iraq into Iran. And the, the government of Iran would be fighting them in the streets of Tehran, and the government of Russia would be fighting them in the streets of Moscow. So um, they have a very important interest in helping their ally, and this is an important issue in international law. These are allies, 
and the Syrian government is allowed to rely on allies and invite their armed forces into their country to protect them. This is part of international law. But it's not part of international law that the U.S. troops are sitting on the eastern third of uh, Syria and milking the oil out of the ground and taking it for themselves. That's a flagrant violation of international law. It's a flagrant violation of international law that Turkey has its troops and its proxies inside of Syria in several places. Those things need to end, and everyone needs to get out of Syria, except Syria and its allies, and all the countries of the world have to reestablish diplomatic relations with Syria. They have to end their uh, regimes of economic sanctions, and they should also, for what the damage they've caused, they should also be paying for with some of the reconstruction of Syria. Thank you. Um, thank you for sharing your perspective with us. It was um, a very interesting debate to listen to between the two of you. And I hope you have a good rest of the day. Well, thank you for coming on. It's been a great uh, interview turned debate-ish kind of uh, like a style. We haven't done this uh, actually. Thank you very much, Henry. It's been great to talk to you. And I encourage all your viewers to come onto the show on Friday night, um, March 19th at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, if, you, if they want to come into the Zoom meeting, they can come and register. Uh, the registration information is on the flyer I sent to you. Or else they can go to the website of the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War and they'll see it as the very first item when they open the page, hcsw.ca. Thank you everyone for tuning in to listen. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we did during the interview. If you liked this episode, learned something, or just want to help out a bunch of students, please leave a review, write a comment, and share this on social media. If you are listening to this on YouTube, please subscribe and write to us in the comments. All the books and other resources recommended by the interviewee are in the podcast description slash video description depending on your platform. And depending on when you see this, you might be able to use our affiliate link to purchase them. The Marianopolis Addendum podcast is actively seeking local sponsors here in Montreal. So if you are interested, please contact us at the email linked in the description. All the profit generated by this podcast will go back to fund our club's activity. If we have any surplus, they will be donated at the end of every month to a local charity. This episode was edited by Jessica. And the artwork is done by Camilla Huang. The producers and guests associated with this episode may express their opinion, but this podcast does not support any political parties. We only aim to bring different perspectives on different issues through the free exchange of opinions and ideas. We look forward to seeing you at our next broadcast. Cheers!